Today, I bring you a PhD, author, renowned growth mindset and meditation teacher, Dr. Fleet Mall. He talks about how taking ownership of our circumstances puts us in a place of power. We have to believe that we have the power to change our present, to create our desired future. Dr. Mall wrote a book called Radical Responsibility, How to Move Beyond Blame, Fearlessly Live Your Highest Purpose, and Become an Unstoppable Force for Good. If you are hearing these words come out of my mouth right now, and you can already hear your subconscious mind going, that might work for others, but it doesn't work for me, this motivation stuff. My circumstances, well, they're just, they're too hard. They're too different. Maybe, maybe you even feel like a lost cause. Then today, I would like to challenge you to pause and ponder and just to hear Dr. Mall as He tells us his story. He walked through his life-changing work while he was serving a prison sentence. He didn't know if he'd live to see his release date. But one thing he did know, he was not going to let his circumstances steal his power or his abilities to make a difference in this world and to live to his highest purpose. If anyone is feeling a little defeated today, this would be a really good time to stay tuned. Thank you so much for joining me. I am your host, Lindsay House, registered dietitian, private trainer, accountability coach, author. I have been working with clients for over 13 years, passionately changing the culture of health and fitness. I'm out here smashing scales, helping individuals rewrite the rules to what success looks like in their life. I want to change generational thinking, no more all or nothing mentality, get rid of the diets and believe in the individualized journey. We are stronger than we will ever accept and beautifully made just the way we are. Keep your eyes on your own paper and trust your own path. Thank you for trusting me and letting me be a constant encouragement through your week. Let's get this motivation started. Welcome to your podcast, Direction Not Perfection. I'm so excited to introduce to our audience today, Dr. Fleet Mall. Dr. Fleet is an author and renowned growth mindset and meditation teacher who delivers his training programs and seminars around the world, both in person and online. Dr. Mall is an executive coach, inspirational speaker, and social entrepreneur who works at an intersection of personal growth and social transformation. Welcome, Dr. Mall. Great to be here. Nice to meet you, Lindsay, and thank you for having me on your show. Thank you so much for your time today. I think to just start this off and get the most inspiration out of our message today, we need your backstory. Okay, well, I'll try to do that very briefly. Um, I grew up in the Midwest and uh, came of age in the 1960s, so I'm a baby boomer. Uh, Grew up kind of a classic angry young man, big hole in my gut due to alcoholism and other issues in my family. Basically, good family, good values, but some real problems with alcoholism and and that was kind of very splitting and kind of my psyche, a big hole in my gut. I was kind of a classic angry young man, but I was also always a seeker. I was a psych major in college, as well as uh, business and psychology, and uh, grew up in kind of a small business family. And uh, but I went headlong into the counterculture and all the craziness of that era. I ended up living as an expat for a while, fell into small time drug trafficking, smuggling uh, as a way to live outside the system justified that with all this us versus them thinking. Along the way, I I had continued my spiritual seeking and 
gone back and got a master's degree in Buddhist and Western psychology, a three-year clinical training program, studied intensively with uh, my first Tibetan Buddhist teacher and was trained as a meditation teacher, all that. So I had this kind of split life going and kept the shadow secret life secret from my teacher, my community. And, you know, I knew I had to get out of it. And I was self-medicating around the cognitive dissonance and all that. So at any rate, in 1985, I ended up in a federal prison on drug charges. And uh, I originally had a 30-year no-parole sentence. I pretty much thought my life was over. I was 35. The paper the next morning said I'd be 64, 65 before I have any chance of release. And my son was nine years old at the time, and, and I just hit a wall. I was absolutely devastated, a real dark night of the soul, having to face what I'd done to him and to his mother and what I'd done to myself and my own life. And and really acknowledging all the incredible, incredibly selfish decisions I've been making for so long, putting his his life at risk, his mother's life at risk. And uh, so I, I became really dedicated to getting all the negativity out of my life and really focusing on on taking all, all I'd received from my family and from my teachers and all my training and doing something good with it. And I ended up in this really hellish environment of a, of a maximum security federal prison hospital in the height of the AIDS crisis. And so I just started showing up and serving. And I, I got a job teaching school. That was my day job. But I got very involved in my own 12-step recovery, dealing with my own substance abuse and alcohol issues. I, I led a meditation group in the chapel for 14 years. And I helped start the first hospice program in a prison anywhere. Most of my extra time on meal breaks and evenings and weekends was spent up in the hospital taking care of men who were dying. And that was incredibly transformative work. I, it ended up being 14 years. So between 1985 and 1999. But this was kind of my monastery time, my ashram time. I was just radically dedicated to transforming myself. And it was a hellish environment, but I had enough background and training and was able to really focus on meditation practices and contemplative life and study. And, and so it became a very, very powerful chamber really for uh, transformation for me. And I actually, you know, built a good life for myself in there, even though day to day, it was a very demeaning place. And uh, so it was a very negative environment, but I developed an inner resilience uh, to where I, I lived in a really pretty uplifted state of mind. But, you know, I was practicing two, three hours a day. I was really intensely practicing various contemplative practices, studying deeply and so forth, and living this life of very disciplined life of service and taking good care of myself and so forth. So I knew I'd be almost 50 when I got out. Very tough to start a life when you're 50. And you know, you got a criminal record. And I would, knew I would be in debt when I got out because of IRS assessments against me. So uh, I knew I had to re work really hard. And, you know, it did pay off when I got out. I've had no, nothing but opportunity ever since. And But the radical responsibility model with the name of my book was really born in that prison because when I got to that federal prison after seven months in this hellhole of a county jail, it's kind of a relief getting there. It was a big place. I could get a job. There were recreational areas. It was a yard. You could walk around. I was very caught up in the drama of my own situation. But when I got there, this place was such a place of suffering. So in that in that light, it it, it really just began to, to radically change my life from the beginning. But the other thing I realized right away, that it was a world of tremendous negativity. Like there was kind of a ritual when you'd meet a prisoner, right? You'd meet somebody and you'd go out, walk the track, uh, you know, a meal break or something. And and, you know, they tell you their victim story, you tell, tell your victim story, right? You know, my fault partner just screwed me over, my lawyer screwed me over this. Everybody's got a big victim story and everybody mm -hmm. feels, you know, victimized by the system. And, you know, 
after going through that ritual once or twice, I didn't I didn't want to hear my story anymore. I really didn't want to hear their stories, which wasn't very compassionate, but it's just I didn't want to live there. And I realized that if I wasn't really proactive, I could live in prison and come out of prison bitter and angry. And, and, and I didn't want to live that way there. I didn't want to come out that way. And I knew that I had to embrace 100%, 200% responsibility for having got myself into that situation for what I was going to do with it and what I'd be able to create with my life going forward. If I, if I survived, I had no surety that I would survive my time, but I knew that if I, if I was able to return to the world, you know, what I was going to be able to do with my life was completely up to me. So that's really where I, I developed this, this approach of, of radical responsibility and taking radical ownership for each and every circumstance I was facing. And that, that approach actually allowed me to create a lot of good while I was there. I started all kinds of programs while I was there in the prison. And I also started two national organizations. Uh, one, the National Prison Hospice Association, which took our hospice model and got it out in the world. So now there's probably 75 or 80 hospice programs in state and federal prisons around the country, as well as some around the world. And then uh, I started an organization to support prisoners interested in mindfulness and Buddhism and Dharma and things like that, which today is a flourishing nonprofit known as Prison Mindfulness Institute. You know, all that came out of not focusing on blame, uh, not blaming myself, not blaming others, not demonizing anybody there, my fellow prisoners or the staff, but just trying to relate with people. How can I relate with people to get things done and move things along and not get caught up in all the drama, but to take ownership for each and every circumstance. And that served me really well. So that's where that was born. So I, that was kind of long, but yeah, it's a long story. <laughs> no, I feel like it's 100% needed. And if, if you can come out of a situation like that, taking 100% ownership, I feel like our listeners can transfer that over into anything, right? I I think that when I think ownership of a situation, it's easier. I actually was just having a conversation even with my daughter this morning. It's it's easier to think of ownership in a situation where it really isn't our fault, but maybe we need to take ownership of it. But I don't know. It transfers over into everything. Like it's a, it can be a prideful thing. Like what are the barriers that you see for people not being able to take ownership. Well, there are a lot of barriers, but and I'll go into some of those. But first of all, I want to clarify that that this idea of radical responsibility or ownership has absolutely nothing to do with blame. It clearly has nothing to do with blaming others. And it has not even one iota to do with blaming ourselves. It's not about blaming ourselves. And it's certainly not about blaming victims. It's It's about how we work with ourselves in our own situation. And so we can find ourselves in a circumstance we're not happy about, and and we can, you know, really take a good look at that and see, is there any way I contributed to that or allowed it or just wasn't paying attention? Like, what's my part in this? And and we look at that not to blame ourselves, but only for the process, for the purpose of learning, for insight. Because if I can, if I got, you know, from point A to B to C and I don't like C, well, if I can understand how I got there, I can make different choices next time and get different results. So I look into and get radically honest about my contribution to circumstances I find myself in only for the purpose of learning so I can create something different in the future it has nothing to do with self-blame. And then we'll find such circumstances where we can't see we had anything to do with it, where they just seem to fall out of the sky and land on our head. And everybody would agree that, no, you had nothing to do with it. You're completely innocent. This just happened to you. It shouldn't happen to anybody. Even those circumstances 
I encourage and, and I work with in my life to embrace 100% ownership. So what does that mean? It, it's Again, it has nothing to do with blame, but I'm owning my choices at that point because whatever circumstance we're in, you know, at some point the most salient question, what am I going to do with it? Am I going to let this take me down? Am I going to stew in a victim mindset forever? Am I going to, you know, or am I going to find the most creative way I can to move my life forward, to respond to this in the most creative way that's a win-win for myself and others. So what's the most creative response to this? Now, we're all human. We're going to find ourselves feeling victimized. We're going to find ourselves kvetching about things. And in some cases, people are terribly victimized, and I'm not being dismissive of that at all. And they may need to have that validated for them and be supported in that. But it, you know, I think we could all see if somebody stays stuck there, at the very least, it's going to be very understandable, and it can be heroic to move beyond that, some of the horrible things that happen to people. But if, if we do remain stuck there, it's going to be very limiting for our life, right? So this is really about how can we find our way, you know, cultivate the resilience to be able to face the tough circumstances of our life. And instead of focusing on who I can blame or feeling victimized, well, what can I do? We call what can I do radical responsibility question. It immediately gets us out of, out of any kind of, you know, blaming or sense of victimization into the world of possibility. Because the minute I think, what can I do? There's always a million things I can do. There's a million different ways I can approach any person, any situation, work with myself. So that's the first thing to understand the distinction between ownership and blame. This has nothing to do with blame. Then in terms of the obstacles, one of the biggest obstacles is just we're creatures of habit. So we're highly programmed. And most of us don't realize how highly programmed we are by our childhood, early childhood conditioning, and then all the influences that have been conditioning us forward. And this is psychological conditioning, but it's literally programming in our brain. Our brains are programmed. There are neural networks in our brain that, you know, it's sort of like, um, you know, maybe, uh, you know, we drive home the same way every day from work and we have that exit we get off in and that's the way we go home. But one day we're supposed to go somewhere else, right? But we find ourselves driving off the exit before we realize it, right? Because we have a neural network in our brain that can get us from work to home without us really being very attentive. It's literally a neural pathway in our brain. And so this stuff gets deeply, uh, deeply programmed into the brain. So one thing is to realize we're up against that and we actually have to work to change that. We have to develop the awareness to recognize our, our programming, to recognize our emotional triggers that can get us going down certain paths. We have to do the work to, to really understand ourselves better and then understand how to gradually change those programs and how to reprogram ourselves uh, in order to move in the direction we want to. Another thing is, you know, basically we live in the interface between our childhood programming and the world around us. And we think, we tend to think we're free, autonomous, you know, free thinking adults walking around making autonomous, free thinking decisions all day. But it's not true. We're very mechanical, very habit-driven creatures. And basically, you know, stimulus A1 comes in, we respond with response B2 every time. We're very mechanical in that way. And so, you know, we're in there in life kind of just getting pushed around by the interface, the reaction between the circumstances we're in and our childhood conditioning. And it's going to be that way until we change it. And it doesn't have to be that way. We can develop the awareness to take responsibility for being in a responsive relationship with life rather than a fear-based and an unconscious reactive relationship. And that really begins with learning to manage our own physiology. That's where it all starts, learning to manage our own physiology. Because 
you know, we all know that we get stressed out and emotionally triggered. So we have, we have a autonomic nervous system that either gets upregulated or downregulated. It has the two branches, sympathetic branches, alertness, then stress, and then out of control, upregulated. And the parasympathetic branch is relaxation and going to sleep. And they're both happening all the time. And they're connected with the in-breath and the out-breath. When we breathe in, slight upregulation. When we breathe out, slight downregulation. So we can learn to use our breath and various breath work techniques to regulate our own physiology. And that's where it really begins. Because until we take ownership for regulating our own physiology, it's being regulated by the world around us and driven by our conditioning. And that keeps us locked in to all of our, all of our habitual programs. So the real doorway to freedom starts with learning to regulate our own autonomic nervous system. So it's interesting how much emphasis you're putting on it and how little people try that or how little people dive in with that same belief that it's going to make that much of a difference. Because I feel like we've all heard our breath work is so important or meditation is incredibly important in our journeys of whatever, but I live kind of in the health land here. So a lot of our talk is around health and fitness. What is your your talk around? Like if somebody's going, they're willing to work out, they're willing to eat healthy, and then they never think about okay, I really should be meditating. I really should be thinking of my breath work. Like, do you feel that they're missing this whole side of the equation that could be benefiting them? Well, if they are working out, if they are eating healthy and that's all working for them, that's all fine and good and wonderful. But most of us know that despite our best intentions, we don't do the things we know that are good for us. And we're constantly breaking the, you know, any kind of diet or regimen that we we can't stick to them. It's very difficult, right? And that's because of all this habituated programming and the influences of the world around us because the world around us, the media and everything is constantly trying to, you know, suck us into whatever they're trying to market. Right. So, you know, most of us really struggle. Uh, if somebody, you know, doesn't struggle with that and they're just able to do what they intend to do all the time. Well, bless them. Right. They're a unique individual. Right. But most of us struggle. And, uh, and so the ground is really de developing self-understanding and developing insight into that. And, you know, really this doesn't have to be hard. Like there's a very simple breath uh, work tool I'll, I'll share with you right now. It's simply called straw breathing. It's called straw breathing because you can do it with a straw. Like you could breathe through a straw, right? But you don't need a straw. You just breathe in through the nose and then you breathe out to pursed lips as if you're breathing through a straw, right? So it's like you're whistling. So by pursing your lips, it's a little harder to get the air out, right? So it creates a little effort. That has a physiological effect. And then we, we want the out-breath to be twice as long as the in-breath. So you might breathe in a four count. In, one, two, three, through the nose. And then out through pursed lips. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Like that. So the out-breath twice as long as the in-breath. You're breathing in through the nose and out through pursed lips. And if anyone does that for even a minute, much less two minutes, you'll feel your nervous system just calm right down because that's engaging this parasympathetic branch of the autonomic nervous system, which is more related with the out-breath and is that calming effect, right? If you wanted to, if you were too sluggish, you need to get upregulated. You can do this quick uh, abdominal breathing with, you know, it's kind of like almost like hyperventilating, but shallow breathing through the nose using your abdominal muscles. So really fast like that and you'll it'll wake up your nervous system. So those are two simple things that 
and it seems really simple, but I train people in this all the time and they're just blown away because they didn't realize they could regulate their own nervous system. And if we don't regulate our own nervous system, who's regulating it? Everybody but us, right? And that's what allows us just doing that kind of thing on a regular basis. First of all, when we do get, find ourselves getting really stressed out and triggered, which usually leads to behaviors that are not so healthy and, and in our own even enlightened self-interest, we can get ourselves untriggered really quickly just doing something like straw breathing. So it can be a lifesaver in that way. But doing it on any kind of regular basis, and there are other things that you can earn, like four, seven, eight breathing that Andrew Weil populated, uh, popularized, uh, box breathing. There's these very simple techniques. They, they put us more in sync with ourselves and in general keep us in a more aware state where we're going to make better decisions. And then if someone's willing to practice some mindfulness, and mindfulness is really simple, uh, practice in, in principle is we place our attention somewhere with the intention to keep it there. And when we notice the mind wanders, we bring it back. The mind wanders, we bring it back. Every time it comes back, it's like we're doing a rep and we're building our the strength of focus, concentration, and mindfulness. Mindfulness is a skill we all have. You couldn't live without it. What we know scientifically is you can have a lot more of it and that benefits our life across every dimension, it gives us more emotional balance, more cognitive control, enhances our immune system. It helps us live longer. I mean, just incredible benefits. The research on mindfulness is incredibly compelling. The most common object of mindfulness that we place our attention on is simply the body and the breath. So we might just sit here. We might have our eyes down a little bit so we're not distracted and just focus on feeling the breath going in and out. And inevitably, we'll get distracted. We'll get lost in thought. We recognize that. We let it go. We come back to the breath. Try again. Stay with the breath. Stay with the breath. We get distracted. We come back. Stay with the breath. Stay with the breath. Very simple practice. You can do it in a concentrated way, 5, 10, 15 minutes sitting down. But you can also start bringing mindfulness into anything you can do. You can be mindful while you're washing the dishes or while you're walking a dog instead of just spacing out. You know, when we're not actively directing our mind, directing our attention, what do you think is directing it? Well, it's just past conditioning. We know a lot about the brain these days, and we're learning more all the time. Uh, there's a network called the default mode network, and it has its purposes, its evolutionary purposes, and even its present-day purposes. But for most of us, our default mode network is way overactive. And this is a very noisy, discursive part of our brain. It likes to time travel and go worry about the past, ruminate about the past. It likes to go into the future and worry about the future or fantasize about the future. It keeps a running commentary going about the present. It's forming all of our opinions. We're thinking about ourselves, what other people think about us. It's the noisy part of the brain that reinforces the constant sense of a small separate self, which is a big source of our suffering, and it creates all our stress. Well, when we focus our attention, that engages something called the task positive network, different network in the brain, and these are mutually inhibitory. So the extent that we focus, the mind quiets down, right? And and we don't that we're not generating all that stress. I mean, we all know if we do something as simple as trying to thread a needle, right? For that moment at least, our mind's going to get really quiet. Right? And that's because we're engaged in a task positive network. So being more, by being more mindful in our life, whether we're mindfully walking, mindfully, mindfully driving our car, or practicing formal sitting mindfulness practice, mindfulness of breathing, that's spending time with the task positive network engaged. So the mind quiets down. We're not creating all that stress. We're not reinforcing a sense of a separate self. And we're developing just greater resilience and you know tremendous possibilities of, of healing our trauma, and developing deeper and deeper resilience. So with the challenges of the life, we can be there and respond in a responsive way, in a relational way, instead of getting pushed back into that fear and survival reactivity with life, 
we can stay more on our, on the balls of our feet and be in a relational uh, responsive mode with life where we can create good relationships and create good outcomes in our interactions with others. Oh, this is so good. And I feel like deep too. So I want to, I'm going to bring it a little more shallow and put you on the spot almost with case study of let's take, let's take that stressed out mom who starts her morning hectic kids get up. There's grumpiness going on in the house. By the time she gets the kids out the door, she's frazzled running off to work, wanting to be healthy, didn't pack her lunch, gets home, still feels like Take how, if this client walked through your door, what would be some of your your talk or your once goal setting, all of that with this type of a client? The first thing I would introduce to them as such a person is breath awareness. Because breath awareness can be done the minute you get up, it can be done while you're getting the kids together, getting them dressed, it can be done while you're making breakfast, it can be done while you're driving, it can be done while you're racing. It's just developing a habit. It's just a habit. It takes a little practice, but it's not that hard to develop. But just being more in your body and more aware of your breath. That'll slow you down. You'll actually more efficiently be able to get the kids up and make the breakfast and get them out the door and get yourself out the door. You'll do that all more efficiently because you're more in your body and you're calmer. And so it's just about feeling the body and feeling the breath. And when you find yourself racing or get, you know, getting too, you just straw breathe straw breathe and you can do it while you're doing things you don't have to stop and go you know in a cave and do straw breathing you do it right in the midst of your activities and it's really magical it's powerful i teach this to correctional officers right i spend a lot of time training police and correctional officers these days and you know they work in really high stress jobs and constant exposure to chronic stress to both primary and secondary trauma the life expectancy for a correctional officer that works in a medium to high level uh, security facility for more than 20 years is 58 years. They're dying two decades earlier than everybody else, right? From all the chronic stress related ailments, from suicidality, from, you know, obesity and addictions and, you know, because they're in, they're, they're under a constant state of chronic stress because they don't know how to manage the, what we're talking about. And they're ex what they're exposed to is just horrendous in terms of the level of primary and secondary trauma. So I teach them all this breath work and mindfulness, and they just soak it up like a sponge because the breath works, learning something as simple as straw breathing, they start using it immediately in a work situation. And they find it gives them just that little bit of freedom, that little bit of space to how they can respond instead of just feeling like they're just constantly being pushed around and everything. So that's really the key is beginning to get in relationship with our own body and our own physiology so we can feel. We've been really enculturated in modern life to not feel. So everybody's taking all kinds of prescription meds and distracting themselves with TV and the, the digital tools and everything else so we don't have to feel. We have the worst opioid crisis in history because people don't want to feel. Well, it's completely counterproductive to not feel. We're feeling, being, we need to feel, but we need to be able to feel without being overwhelmed by our feelings. And that happens by being grounded in the body, doing breath work. Then we can be feeling all the time. And, and then we're, less, we're not going to get so hijacked by strong emotions because we're always more in touch with our emotions and our body and so forth. So it's really having simple practices to get in the body, be in the body, feel the body, be more present, and use simple breath work tools to help manage our own physiology. So when we're getting too upregulated, we can bring it right back down. Thank you.
Yes, beautifully said. And I have a question for you. Is this a segue into growth mindset is another word that you used often. Can you kind of tell us where does growth mindset come into play with all of this? Absolutely. And by the way, I just want to let your listeners know, uh, I mean, they can check out my book, Radical Responsibility. But if you want to learn about breath work, just go to your search engine and put in straw breathing, put in four, seven, eight breathing, put in box breathing. There's tons of material, YouTube videos. It's just so readily available. You can just go learn it right now. It's right there on YouTube. There's tons of instruction about it. If you want, if you're nerdy and want to learn the neuroscience about it behind it, it's all on there as well. But this is just so available. So it's available to anybody just, just like that. Just put it in your search engine, straw breathing, and you'll find out how to do it. Growth mindset is really, you know, it, it's very similar to this idea of ownership. Now, growth mindset, uh, Carol Dweck's work, it's been, you know, really influential in the field of education. Uh, you know, it's the opposite of a limited mindset where I think, you know, this is just the way I am. Like, I'm only this smart. I'm only this talented. This is what I know. This is this is going to be my life. You know, I'm, I'm, it's a limited mindset. Right. And they see that children who who have a limited mindset because of whatever influences, they don't do well in school. And if they can help them shift to a growth mindset, well, no, I can learn and I can I can improve. I can get better at this and I can get better at math. I can get better at, at writing. I can get better at a sport. I can, I'm a growing being. There are there are really no limits. If I'm willing to apply myself, I can always get better at anything and everything. Right. And so that's the growth mindset. The growth mindset is that, you know, life is life is very malleable. It's very changeable. Like I, I can learn anything that I apply myself to. I can really do anything that I apply myself to. You know, some people are more inherently talented around certain things, maybe born with certain genes or something. You know, if you're under six feet, you're probably not going to play in the NBA. You know, there are there are some limitations, but but the limitations pale in comparison to the possibilities in our life. Any of us can really learn to do anything that we want to apply ourselves to. It's really completely up to us. And that's the growth mindset. And that comes back to the idea of radical responsibility, radical ownership of, you know, just owning my own destiny. You know, my, my debt, you know, and th these are not new ideas. Um, Marcus Aurelius, who was considered the last great Roman emperor, and he was a Stoic of the Stoic philosophy. And there, there he has a wonderful book of his uh, kind of called Marcus Aurelius's Meditations. It's a lot of these short sayings of his, which I encourage people to check out. But kind of paraphrasing one of them, it was something like, you know, most people feel like their destiny is determined by their circumstances, that their destiny is determined by the circumstances. So in today's model, it could be the, the zip code you grow up in, you know, or you, if you're if you grow up in a poor neighborhood or in poverty or if you're if you're, you know, your skin color, you're the and it's not that these things don't have influences, they can create real challenges. And we should all be working to make the level of playing field and, and make every, you know, ideally everyone have as equal of an opportunity as possible. But regardless of circumstances, we can all grow and we can all move forward. It is really up to us. And what Marcos Aurelius said, it's not, it's not that our destiny is determined by our circumstance, our circumstances, our destiny is determined by our response to those circumstances, what we do with those circumstances. And everybody knows the truth of that. Everybody knows it intuitively. And but, you know, we're really enculturated in, in a different direction. Our culture is really reinforces victim mindsets in major ways today. And our culture is also full of blame and shame 
And, you know, it's important. There's a lot of good values in our culture and all everything I'm talking about. You can find it everywhere in the culture. Historically, you can find elements of it. But we also embrace this kind of you know, what I think is a, a, a sad twist on Christian theology, the more Calvinist view of the, you know, that human beings are basically flawed and have this depraved nature and absence, some coercive threat or coercive force. We won't behave well. We're essentially dangerous. Right. And, and that's a very negative view of humanity. And it's not that it hasn't been historically been the, the agreed upon view throughout cultures all over the world. The much more dominant view is that we're inherently good, that we have innate goodness, innate wholeness. And, and uh, it's really, it's, it's fear that gets in the way, right? You know, even, you know, if you look at what, what do most human beings all over the planet do every day? They get up, they do their best to take care of themselves, to take care of their kids, they drive on the right side of the road, they queue up at the well. We're highly cooperative and collaborative until fear sets in. And if enough fear sets in that we can't get our needs met, then we may start behaving in some really untoward ways, right? So if we want a more workable society and a more you know enlightened society, we need to remove as much fear and have people have greater assurity that they can get their needs met. But for, you know, so we all wanna work collectively to create a better world in that way. For, for every one of us individually, it's really up to us. And I'll give you an example of that. I, I teach in prisons, right? So when I go into a prison, I want the prisoners to get that. I really get that most of them have been terribly victimized in their lives. I mean, most people end up in prison, you know, and I've done a lot of trainings and, and deep group work in prison. And you find out the vast majority of people who are in prison have suffered from severe abuse in their childhood, severe physical, emotional, or sexual abuse, or all three. They've been literally programmed to end up in prison. So I want, when I go in, I want people to know that I get that. I also want to know that, that I get that our criminal justice system is highly unjust, that it's highly racist, whether by default or by design, but it's highly racist. And, you know, that a lot of them have been you know, victimized in so many ways their whole lives. I want them to get that, I get that. I also want them to get that I'm brokenhearted to see any of my fellow human beings behind bars. So I really want them to get that, and they do get that, because that's who I am. I also want them to get that where they're going to be able to go with their life has nothing to do with anything other than the choices they're making today and tomorrow. That their destiny is totally up to them, regardless of all the past, regardless of all the victimization, regardless of all the circumstances, for which we all want to bring tremendous empathy and compassion, but it's still up to them. Their destiny is going to be based on the choices they're making today and tomorrow and nothing else. And, you know, if they want to change the world and have a more just world, well, then get your life together, get out of prison, go out there and change the world, but do it from a place of empowerment, not from this place of, you know, of, of a victim mindset or a sense of entitlement. You know, today there's, there's this kind of sense of entitlement that the world's supposed to be a certain way and it's supposed to be, it's supposed to be, you know, just, and it's supposed to be this, and it's supposed to be that, and every, you know, well, all those things are good. We want all those things, but the world's not supposed to be anyway. I mean, the world is what it is, and none of us are entitled to anything. You know, the human race, you know, slithered out of the swamp, whatever, millions of years ago. It's evolution. It's a brutal process, and life is only going to be as good as we make it collectively and individually, so it's, it's up to each and every one of us to work every day to do that, but we don't need to feel bad about humanity. We're actually doing really good. It, things are better than they've ever been, despite all the terrible problems we have. All you got to do is have a historical perspective and see how even more terrible it was in the past, right? So, you know, we're actually doing really well, and but it's up to each and every one of us. But we can do that out of a sense of aspiration rather than that we're somehow entitled to this. You know, we're not entitled to anything. 
I mean, I believe in human rights and all that. And these are collective things that we've made collective agreements. We want to assure that people have certain rights, but we did that collectively. That wasn't ordained from somewhere. You know, it didn't fall out of the sky. It was because human beings gathered and said, no, we want to commit to this collectively, right? So we need to do that, but we can do it out of a sense of aspiration and moving forward rather than a sense of entitlement and constantly like indicting humanity, indicting the past, like we're, we're so horrible. No, we're, we're beings who are growing and evolving and thriving. And when we're not fearful, we do really good. So, you know, how can we lower the fear and how can each one of us take responsibility for managing ourselves so we can add value to the collective and, you know, and, and be as good of a, a participant in life as we possibly can. I hope everyone is hearing choices out of what you're saying, that our choices make all the difference and that you can stand from being inside a prison cell or outside preaching to that there is no lost causes, that we all have the ability to keep growing and keep changing and keep motivating and empowering. I just, I feel like I see clientele or individuals who feel like, well, it's going to work for them, but it's just not going to work for me, you know, and kind of settled into that. And you're pouring so much hope over everyone today. And I really thank you for that. As I look at your book and, and program, like I'm going to read your title one more time, Radical Responsibility, How to Move Beyond Blame, Fearlessly Live Your Highest Purpose and Become an Unstoppable Force for Good. What is your hope out of writing this book? Like as you, and as we kind of start to wrap up today, what do you hope individuals heard out of you today? What would you hope their next action step would look like? Well, you brought up choice. And this is really all about recognizing choice and living at choice. And I really, really hope that people would recognize that that is the doorway to freedom. Very often when people hear about choice, it sounds like a burden. Right? It sounds like, oh, I got to take on all this responsibility and choice. Well, it, it actually isn't. It's the doorway into freedom and joy and happiness. Because we just got to get over that, you know, because we've all been enculturated and somehow, you know, life should be easy and we're entitled to this and we're entitled to that. And life's hard. And so any of us who are struggling, any of your listeners who are struggling, you know, I I I feel feel it. You know, I feel you, you know, it, life is hard. And it's challenging. And even when, you know, when we're doing everything right, you know, life is, you know, I've been doing this work for a long time and I've had some profound losses in my life, you know, right before I got, my dad died five months before I got out of prison. One of my greatest hopes was to be out and have him see me free in the world. And uh, he knew I was doing good. I think he knew I was going to be okay, but, but, you know, he didn't get to see me free. And then my mom died five months after I got out. And the woman who uh, was really my best friend, we'd been involved in a relationship before I went to prison. She went on with her life, of course, and I wanted her to, and she was smart enough to do so. But, you know, when we got out, you know, we were, we were still very close friends. We were considering whether to, you know, and then she died a year after I got out. Um, I found another woman, the love of my life that I was in partnership with. Uh, and, you know, basically, we we're basically we would have gotten married eventually. We were together for six years. She died of cancer in 2008. Um, the same year, my my son suffered a terrible head injury. And I thought he was never coming back from, you know, to be himself again. But he did finally. And uh, so all that was going on. And then uh, very sadly, and tragically, um, that eventually led through epilepsy and other things that that I lost him and he died two years ago. Um, 
I'm very grateful I'm in a new relationship now with my wife, Sophie, and amazing. She is the love of my life, and we've been together for six years, and I'm very grateful and so much joy in my life. And I live with the sadness of, of having lost my son, right? So no matter what we do, life life is challenging, and life is, life is hard, right? And sometimes it's easier, sometimes it's harder. So we need to have tremendous compassion for ourselves and tremendous compassion for others. But where the real joy and energy in life is, is really in embracing our choices. It, 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 when we start really focusing on choice and the fact that we can and that growth mindset, it, it brings so much energy. And we realize that, you know, even though life is really hard uh, and can be really hard, life is also full of possibility and joy and amazement. It's, it's a magical adventure. And uh, it's really just a matter of shifting that mindset um, and, and getting into that more positive growth mindset where we see life as a tremendous adventure and we're just constantly picking ourselves up and getting back to it and doing the best we can. You're so good. We're so lucky to have you today. Thank you so much for your time. Can you just let everyone know the easiest places to find you? Sure. Well, I start off with my basic website, just fleetmall.com, fleetmall.com. Uh, if they want to check out some of my online courses and all the online summits I do, that's at heartmind.co. That's Heartmind Institute, but the website is heartmind.co. And if people happen to be interested in the prison work I do, that's prisonmindfulness.org. Oh, and also the book. You can check out the book at radicalresponsibilitybook.com, radicalresponsibilitybook.com, and you can download a free chapter there. Awesome. Thank you again so much needed you today. You're very welcome, Lindsay. Great to be with you. Thank you for listening today. Whether you are working with me personally or just letting these podcasts speak into your life, I truly appreciate you trusting me on your journey, and I will always have some free materials waiting for you on my website at healthaccountabilitycoach.com. I have habit trackers, meal planning worksheets, blank calendars where you can track your daily successes. Come check it out and always feel free to reach out if you need any referrals, if you are seeking your own accountability, or if you just want to say hello and provide your beautiful insight and feedback. I appreciate your valuable time and listening ears. This topic served any purpose for you or you can picture that exact person who needed this. I'm always honored when you share the episode. We are making 2022 the year that we are going to pour motivation and inspiration onto others. I also always appreciate it when you leave a review on iTunes and rate the podcast. I send you off with all the praise and momentum you deserve for staying open-minded to new information, keeping that open mind to the idea that our journey will look different now, five years from now, slow and steady, y'all. It's not always instant gratification and not always that exciting but a much gentler and redeeming path that will serve you well throughout all the years and every season of life. Cheers to health and happiness.